In this episode, you'll hear from trust and safety experts at Nextdoor and Etsy as they discuss their different approaches to user and seller verification, respectively. This conversation occurred between Justin Harriman, the lead engineer responsible for trust and safety at Nextdoor, Jennifer Kelly, the senior director of Marketplace Integrity at Etsy, and it was hosted by Joe Midling, director of sales engineering at Incogni. It was recorded on February 15th during a virtual event facilitated by Marketplace Risk, the most comprehensive source of education, networking, and information exchange for marketplace, sharing economy, gig economy, peer-to-peer, and collaborative economy startups. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Andre Faras, co-founder and CEO at Incognit. Welcome to Trust and Safety Mavericks, a show focused on topics related to online trust and safety and riding the next big wave. Welcome. So before we get into it, it would be great to, we'll just do a, a quick round of introductions. Um, and I, I'm joined uh, just to, on myself uh, first, Joe Mitling, Director of Solution Engineering at Incognia or Location Behavioral Identity Solution and you know a, a key member of Marketplace Risk. So looking forward to this conversation. Then I'm joined by Justin and Jennifer, a uh, few veterans in the trust and safety space at some uh, well-respected brands with Nextdoor and Etsy. So Justin, maybe you could introduce yourself first and just uh, roll how you describe your your company or platform to the audience and then uh, your overall mission at Nextdoor and then Jennifer, you next. Sure. Thanks, Joe. So I'm Justin, I'm an engineering lead and founder of the trust and safety team at Nextdoor. How would I describe Nextdoor? I mean, Nextdoor is a neighborhood network where you can connect neighbors, neighborhoods that matter to you. Uh, when people use Nextdoor, they can use it to receive trust information, give and get help, get things done, like find service providers, local businesses they want to they want to go, you know, patronize. Uh, it, all with the goal of building real world connections for those that those that are near you, uh, including other neighbors, local businesses, and public services. As, as for the mission of the trust and safety team next door, our mission really is to establish that trusted environment for neighbors to be able to interact with each other with people that they know have are, are real people and have a real tie to their place. That's it for me. Hand it over to Jennifer. Thanks. I'm Jennifer Kelly. I lead seller verification and financial crime operations at Etsy. I've been with Etsy for about four years and um, best way to describe Etsy.com is a marketplace for unique and handmade goods. We are a marketplace primarily of small businesses or businesses of one selling from outside their homes or from within their homes. And the Etsy Inc. umbrella includes what we call a house of brands. So there's several other marketplaces within our that umbrella, including Reverb, which is a marketplace focused on musical instrument and equipment resale. Depop, which is very cool amongst the Gen Z set for resale and upcycling, primarily of clothing. And Elo7, which is a domestic Brazilian marketplace that's very similar to Etsy. So I'm happy to be here today. Great. Thanks, Jennifer. Perfect. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in. And um, we just wanted to go ahead and set the agenda here off the top for everyone in the audience so you can uh, have an expectation of uh, what we're going to cover in the session. So just to kind of dive into the overall goal here. So there's a lot of interesting topics that 
marketplace risk tackles with um, our members to, you know, uh, across the board here in terms of trust and safety topics. What we're going to focus on today and the primary topic is going to be around user verification and more specifically how, you know, these respective organizations, Nextdoor and Etsy, are tackling the challenge of user verification and, and how it fits in the overall trust and safety strategy. So very much user verification focused, but we're also going to widen the lens a little bit on trust and safety overall. So you can see here, we'll, we'll first focus on goals with um, user verification. Uh, we'll then kind of go to day zero as, as we've talked about it in preparing for this webinar and um, hear from Justin and Jennifer on you know early days in terms of establishing trust and safety strategies and controls. Then we'll go uh, deep dive into user verification and a lot of interesting topics there and then wrap up with a, a look ahead and recommendations. So that is the overall goal. So let me go ahead and we'll dive in with the group here. So on the first topic, just to kick it off and establish a good understanding for the audience, it would be great to get a high level sense of the role of user verification at Etsy and Nextdoor. And more specifically, maybe the question would be to start out, what was your company's goals or what are your company's goals with user verification? And then we can take it from there. So uh, maybe Jennifer will let you kick it off from Etsy's perspective. Sure. So seller verification at Etsy historically was driven by the existence of Etsy payments. Etsy has a payments platform. And so as a payments provider, you have certain regulatory obligations to verify or know your sellers. KYC, KYB is sort of the common vernacular for describing those processes. They're the same processes that you would see at a PayPal or even a, a bank. But that has evolved into something that's much greater than just satisfying a regulatory obligation. Verifying our sellers, our customers at Etsy are our sellers in this context, is central to supporting a trusted marketplace. It is one of the earliest interventions that you can make on a user-generated content platform, in my case, a marketplace, to understand who will be posting content and what risks that content might pose, whether that be fraud or other bad downstream outcomes. So what started as largely a regulatory-driven exercise has really evolved into something much more strategically valuable. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because in the, the prep for this, we kind of talked about how they how these two kind of things compare. So from the Nextdoor side, a lot of what we focus on and have focused on has not been compliance-driven. It's been about creating that in trusted environment for neighbors to interact, right? We, as a platform, we bring together people who are neighbors who don't necessarily know each other, and we want them to be able to build connections with each other. And in order to do that, they have to be trusted. They have to have that trust with them. So a lot of our goals are around establishing that trust, creating a baseline where neighbors can know that when they interact with someone, that person is a real person and has a real tie to the place they're talking about, they're discussing, they're, they're interacting with. So it's interesting to compare because we, we, we kind of start there thinking about how we, how we even use that to establish the neighborhood. And then, you know, think about how it moves towards some of these other compliance-driven goals that we, you know, have, eventually will have, and, and, you know, meet in the middle there between our two companies. That makes sense. And I think um, evolutions of platforms influence those changes as well, and you have to adapt. Um, you know, I know I'm a, a power next door user and I, you know, interact with, you know, selling, you know, some, one of my kids uh, outgrew their crib, selling their cribs on, on, on next door, that sort of thing. And so there's, you know, some interesting as, as platforms evolve, what's handled on the platform or maybe off the platform influences those processes. So 
maybe that's it's a good segue into the into the next question is how you handle user verification, I would guess is very much dynamic, just based on you know the, the current state of the business and, and where it's going uh, or the current state of the platform. But just be interesting. This is kind of a two-parter. How have these goals shaped your user verification process as as it stands today? And then maybe you could just more kind of tactically describe what your user verification process looks like today at a, at a high level. So we we have that baseline on two platforms that you know that are very different in in many ways. Justin, maybe you can kick it off first, and then we'll go back to Jennifer. Sure, and and like like you were saying, like that interaction that you want to have with sellers and in our marketplace product, like you you want to establish that that trust so that you always can kind of come and, and find when you find someone next door to sell to sell something to you or buy something from like you know they they are a real person that's nearby right mm-hmm. so that goal for us because it's a baseline really does shape the process like every new neighbor that signs up has to go through the verification process now and th- i'm going to like i said blend a little bit of these questions so the process is can be completely invisible to someone signing up but they always go through it when you sign up we know your name we know your address we know the email address you signed up with and we know general device details, right? If possible, hopefully that's enough for us to make a determination that, yeah, you're probably going to fit that baseline of real person with a real tie to the neighborhood that we're looking for. And then as if you don't, or if we, we feel that we're still not comfortable with the risk, we add more checks on top of that. So talk about doing phone, like asking for a phone number, comparing that to a suite of vendors, asking for geolocation, comparing that to a suite of vendors. And then finally, I mean, one of the things that we early on, I know we're going to talk about day zero later on, but um, we, we, we leverage postcards even. We'll, we'll send you a postcard to see if you actually do live at that address, right? How we've used them changes over time, but we look at that whole scale of different techniques in order to be able to judge the risk of saying this is a real person with a real tie to that neighborhood, right? If we establish that, then we're able to accomplish that goal of building a, a trusted environment. Makes sense. Yeah. And so that um, flexibility in terms of Geographically, there uh, you know, I would imagine there's flexibility that you have to build in there. Different different regions, different requirements, you know, coverage, all these, um, and then the regulations within some of these regions. There's I could see that the complexity that comes with that, and you know, the adaption that you have to make sure you're you built into the into the waterfall and your flows. That makes sense. Yeah, you have to think about what the baseline is for what baseline you're trying to establish, and that baseline really does depend on what you're able to find. What you know, every market's different, every area is different, but also like what you, what you, you have to really interrogate what you value, right? Every verification process has some amount of loss and you need to balance that against like what, what you're trying to accomplish. Are we accomplishing that baseline of a trusted local community, right? Or are we going too far and is we're, we're, we're excluding people that should be in that, that bucket, right? So being able to balance those things is, is really important think about why you're making the trade-offs. Excellent. And Jennifer, on your end? Yeah, very similar on my side. I think the integrity of the data points that you're relying on can vary a lot from market to market. So you're really looking jurisdiction by jurisdiction. The more countries you operate in, the more complex this gets because um, it can really vary the quality of the underlying data set that you're accessing. That will drive failures. And failures translate into friction and also OPEX. So my team is an operational team comprised of people that are reviewing identity-related documentation to manually approve sellers to get them activated on the platform. And often this happens at onboarding, but there's also verification touch points throughout a life cycle of a seller. 
And so getting someone back up and running quickly is really important both to Etsy's bottom line and to that seller. So the question of friction is looms really large here because you want enough confidence that this person is who they say they are. Um, but sometimes to get that level of confidence, you're incrementally adding additional verification steps that get increasingly onerous. And so the framing of that is really important and you got to make sure it's worth it to you. Are you Is the risk worth the amount of friction that you're introducing? Separately, because we do come at this from sort of a regulatory standpoint in many cases, sometimes a regulator will be pretty prescriptive on what data points or what sources they will consider adequate. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. That makes sense. A lot of good points you made there uh, that I know we want to touch on when we dive deeper into user verification. So I, I won't... Um... Well, we'll circle back on those, but but some of the things you mentioned are, I think, really important to go a little bit further on for the audience. So thanks for the, the intro there. Great. So shifting gears a bit to going back to early trust and safety and, and that topic, um, and obviously Nextdoor and Etsy are quite mature platforms, established trust and safety teams and controls. And, you know, it, it's really fascinating to be able to understand all the complexities that you have to navigate. But as we think about, and before we get into back into user verification in more detail, I think it would be great for the audience if we take a step back and learn about how your organizations approach trust and safety in the early days. And I, I know you each have some interesting perspective on that. So I think maybe to kick this off, just you know, what was day zero like in terms of trust and safety at, at your respective organizations? You know, so just kind of the methodology that you approached building out trust and safety and all the all the nuances around that. So um, I think that's a great place to start. So maybe we'll kind of continue with the ping pong here and Jennifer, start with you. Yep. I was not at Etsy at day zero of their trust and safety program, but the experience I do have with this comes more from the acquisitions that we've made in recent years. Our subsidiary marketplaces are younger than Etsy. And with all trust and safety activities at any stage of a company, it's about naming your risks and then ranking them because you'll never have the resources you need to fully mitigate every single risk that you're confronting. So what are your important ones and how are you going to address them? And so I think that the scarcity of resources and the priority of diverting resources to trust and safety related product and engineering or operations builds at a startup at day zero has to be really carefully weighed against how you would use those resources to grow your user base or drive more revenue or do things that will create a virtuous cycle that will later lead to more investment in the trust space. But you can't grow those things if you're not, if you're completely ignoring trust and safety, if you're not instilling trust in your platform, you won't be able to achieve those other broader business goals. So it's a balancing act. And as you get bigger, your pile of resources also gets bigger, but that prioritization conversation never stops. Right. Makes sense. And uh, Justin, before we go over to, to next door, just maybe a, a follow-up there, um, Jennifer. So just in terms of establishing those goals, uh, in terms of what what you want to prioritize from a trust and safety perspective, what were the biggest challenges you faced in doing that? Is it internal alignment across the many teams? I know what's fascinating to me is how collaborative you have to be from a trust and safety perspective, the outside looking in, because you're at a touch point with so many different groups from engineering to product to legal across the board. So biggest challenges you faced either kind of externally and just figuring out the right controls and the right methodology to establish what you need to with your users or 
Was it more internal? Was it a mix of both? I think that would be just a, a focus there before we go over to the next door side. Yeah, I think the biggest problem is a lack of a shared understanding of what the risks are and what specifically they are. So starting really early with a risk taxonomy where you can ground across all of those different functions and a common understanding of the definitions of the risks that you're naming will go a long way in helping you prioritize them and stay organized as you execute and try to mitigate them. So I think that pausing to create a taxonomy that's a source of truth across the company and that'll continue to evolve. And also recognizing that risk analysis is never a point in time or it's always a point in time and it needs to be regularly revisited. So remaining really aware of emerging risk and how risk appetite will shift and how the risk environment is shifting around you. It's a dynamic moving target. Great points. And Justin, on your end? Yeah. So I mean, I, I think when I'm thinking about day zero, I think a lot of what Jennifer just said rings true. I mean, I think it the journey of Justin's safety is several inflection points that all themselves are like day zero, like the world is what it is until it isn't. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what I think about when I think about Nextdoor. So verification was always a part of Nextdoor from its founding, even before I was here, but that wasn't itself a, a trust and safety team, right? It was a, a notion of how we bring to how we, how we set the baseline, but it it worked for so long until it until it doesn't, and you have to adapt and create new new approaches. So when I think about founding trust and safety, it's recognizing that hey, we saw like verification protect us for a long time, and then we start to see a different type of bad actor arise. Um, credential stuffing attacks more, become more common. Account takeovers become more of a thing you have to think about. And that focuses your efforts in a, in a different area. Like as you are making that risk analysis day by day, your bad actors are changing too. Like they are becoming more complex because hopefully you're you're growing your platform, becoming more valuable. You have more value to bring to a bad actor, and so you need to adapt different techniques as they get smarter, right? So I think like early on, it's it, it, like Jennifer said, it, it's about establishing that. The goal of what you're seeing right now, what is the highest level risk that you're seeing? How do you respond to that? How do you build structures so that you can advance, right? And so you can see going forward, like what, how can I see the path and how I'm going to improve, even though I'm not going to build that right now, right? Eventually I will have a sophisticated bad actor that requires that system, but but today I don't, right? I think for us, it was... When I think back on it, I think there was one of the things I learned was that there was no, there was no shortcut. Like there were things that like, yeah, like ML is great, but you actually have to have a lot of the rest of your system in place in order to really make leverage it effectively. And and that was one of the like challenges as as we responded to a threat was like, hey, we need to actually follow the path of building up our system in order to be able to respond to that that threat. Got it. Yeah, makes sense. And um, so, yeah, I think you you touched on that just on on user verification more specifically as part of your early trust and safety strategy. It sounds like that was you know kind of day one. That was something you were you were thinking about. Anything else you want to add on to specifically around user verification and how you how you thought about that? You know, at, from the inception and versus how you think about it now on the next door side. Sure. I mean, I, I think it it's something where our understanding of, of, of what we were doing, why we were doing it really evolved over time. Like early days, founding days, like a lot of what we, what was focused on was like, okay, we, we have a sense that this is important, right? We, we have a sense that 
knowing that they're they're real people that have a real tie to your neighborhood is an, is an important thing. But we didn't fully understand like what what does the risk curve look like, right? Like in reality, if you take a step back, and this is you know today, Justin talking, not not long ago, <laughs> um, most like bad activity accounts for a very small proportion of your overall activity, right? I mean, it depends on the on the use case, what your what um, specific product you're providing, what how how it can be exploited, but you could kind of say like it, it generally falls a power distribution. Bad actors are really intense, but they're a very small slice of the overall activity. So for us, evolving verification, thinking about how to how to think about it, move from okay, this seems like a great idea. Let's let's you know we kind of binary thinking of you're verified, you're not. Evolved into like how can we better quantify that risk? How can we think about think about it more as a risk standpoint that someone is is a bad actor trying to deceive us versus not right? So that we can move along that power distribution and capture more of the group that is good, that are good actors, but are hard to detect, right? Like lots of people who, what, like what data is available, what type of uh, information we can gather is limited by, you know, people's role in, in the world. Like if someone moves around a bunch, doesn't have a stable place to stay, like that is a, shows up as, as not being present in the data, even though those are perfectly good actors, right? So when I think about the evolution over time, I think about moving from simple notions of like what, how to establish that trust to notions that are a little bit more focused and a little bit more understanding that it's really a risk calculation you're doing. You're trying to under, you're trying to capture as much good activity as you can trading off against that bad activity, right? It's a balancing act and you have to, you have to kind of think about how to draw that line and how do you think about drawing the line? That makes sense. And I, I just, on that topic, um, for both, both of you, one thing you just got me thinking about was early days, you know, I work with companies kind of across the board, startups to, you know, very advanced companies and early days, you know, you're, you're really trying to, to make your mark. You're trying to acquire users. There's not a lot of eyes on your platform and likely there's not a lot of bad actors thinking about what they, how they can exploit your platform yet. Right. So I would imagine it's another challenge is, you know, you want to grow. Certainly that's the goal and early days, you're not going to have as much sophisticated attacks or strategies trying to, to, um, you know, scam or commit fraud, et cetera. But as your platform grows, you know, visibility grows, that's where the fraudsters will go. Right. So you have to, that's another angle to this is the sophistication I would guess increases as well. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent, like, like as you, as you're more valuable, bad actors come and try to use that value. Right. Like if, if they can, if they can make a hundred thousand dollars a day, then yeah, they, they will. Right. It's because you've become more valuable. They'll try to find a way to do it. And you're, response has to be right size to that to that risk right if you're really small and really really focused on growth like yeah I mean there's risks you should a- account for but you may need to make sure it's right size to to where you are as a platform to what value you bring to a bad actor trying to attack you right if you're bringing about a bad actor 10 bucks they might not they're probably not going to attack you if you raise the cost of attacking you to ten dollars <laughs> right I, I mean that sounded a little bit easier than it easier calculation than it is. It's really hard to quantify exactly how many dollars they can pull out. And then if you're, if, especially if you're not working in a transaction space, but that's generally how to think about it is you, you want to make it costly enough that you're not really a target anymore. And that, that becomes increasingly harder. If you're very valuable, if you're bringing a lot of users to your platform, then yeah, you're, you're a big target. You're someone they want to go after and you have to think about how you scale 
your response to them. Makes sense. And I would just add that I think anticipating that vulnerability is really, really hard to do. And so often in trust and safety, you're winning if no one hears about the thing. And it can be hard to request resources preemptively before the risk has materialized. It's really hard to predict, but it is almost universally true that as you succeed and you're generating more activity on the platform, more buyers, more users, whatever, you're similarly attracting fraud. So anticipating that and investing in mitigants is really important, but also really challenging or can be really challenging to advocate for. And then again, if you succeed, it was the absence of something happening, which can be a difficult message depending on the level of exposure of your executive team to this kind of dynamic. If you lived through it, I think you never forget it. But um, if you haven't, it's it's kind of hard to to conceptualize. Yeah, yeah I, I think this is always a challenge for for any trust and safety team is that if you're doing your job, no one knows you're you're there, right? Mm-hmm. And you're right, 100%. It's, it's about communicating what your goals are, what establishing metrics that you can talk about, right? And convincing leadership of like, those metrics are important, right? Those metrics have a direct impact. Even if the metric you're measuring is hard to tie to a specific number, like generating the narrative of why that metric matters, why it has staying power if you don't do anything, helps you drive those decisions around investing in dress and safety, investing in things that help improve the integrity of the platform. Because yeah, if you're doing everything right, nothing happens. But then, you know, the moment that someone breaks through, like I said, a series of inflection points, some will break through and then suddenly everything's very bad because you didn't invest, right? As that value increases, those inflection points become more, more probable, right? And the few connecting a few things there, what you both said about being proactive and trying to look out a little bit beyond the headlights and there's a lot of challenges there. I want to get to that in a moment, but just, you know, connected to Justin, what you mentioned, it's just in terms of establishing goals, establishing trust and safety goals. You know, one of the elements here, just diving a little bit more into trust and safety is how do you look out beyond the headlights? How do you kind of diving deeper into user verification? How do you internally educate and get alignment around, you know, what kind of the next, what the next goals are, how you continue to strengthen trust and safety and user verification more specifically. And Jennifer, what you shared a really interesting story with us, I just found fascinating as we were preparing for this on some other industries you look at as kind of the, you know, some models for user verification. So not to put you on the spot, but I think it would be fascinating for the audience to be able to hear how you approach that from an Etsy perspective. Yeah, absolutely. This is sort of my not safe for work yet. Very much we're at work (laughs) spiel. Um, So I think when it comes to the internet, generally looking at the porn industry is fascinating and very important to do. It is sort of the foundational industry of the internet. It has an enormous user base. It has huge risks associated with it. Real world harm very severe problems can occur on these platforms. And so because of those factors, they kind of are a breeding ground for innovation and they can be really good indicators of the way that the whole industry may head and the way the internet is functioning. So seller verification or user verification specifically has seen some really interesting things happening in the porn industry. Pornhub, one of the larger platforms, 
decided after a very damning New York Times expose about the number of videos on the platform that were either involving underage users or non-consensual, really, really bad things, that they had no choice but to completely turn their business model upside down and only allow verified users to post content. So what had been more of a free-for-all, which was great for business, I imagine, but bad for risk, they completely did a 180 and removed millions of videos. I don't know what the revenue impact of that was, but it must have been enormous. And that was self-directed strategic decision to save the platform and maintain trust and start reducing some of these really harmful downstream outcomes. One thing that they saw happen as a result of this is their DMCA takedown notices. So the notice and action framework where someone who owns intellectual property says, hey, you're using my property, you got to take it down. The platform removes it, contacts the person that posted it, and those two deal with it off platform. That's a really expensive operational process for platforms to maintain, and we all have to do it to maintain our liability protection. They saw a 98% decrease in the number of those notices coming through after they introduced this verification requirement. That is astounding. So it really demonstrates the value of what this verification can provide as this very early um, intervention that can save you a lot of money, but also reduce a lot of risk. So I just have found that really, really fascinating to follow, especially because it wasn't a regulator telling them they had to do it. It was a strategic business decision that they just chose to pursue themselves. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, really, really interesting. And I think the, I guess the other piece of that connected to, to what you shared, Justin, is making those types of changes, especially something as dramatic as that, that is a huge amount of coordination and buy-in internally to make those types of changes. And that stuff doesn't happen overnight, um, Justin, to your point. So, you know, there's there's just, you know, there's a lot of factors at play here, but um, yeah, really interesting insights, uh, Jennifer. Anything, Justin, on your side, as we dive deeper into user verification, just, you know, factors that you have considered over, over time or are looking at now that influence your evolution around user verification? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, like I was talking about earlier, it's like, how do you find the right size solution? And I think to some of what Jennifer's talking about, like when you add an intervention, like like user verification, and for us, we've, we've kind of had it the whole time. We've just kind of think, thought about it slightly differently through that time period. Um, when you add it, you're, you're, you're creating a, a new environment where different rules apply. Like and a naive level, you can have something where, yeah, it's a free for all. Like everyone's, a, everyone can access something that you think that really drives growth, but it it doesn't necessarily drive um, good types of growth. It drives it drives like a lot of fraud, a lot of different th- bad things that can happen. And so, like when, when I think about where we started and how we kind of thought about it, it's like, yeah, I mean, those having that verification process does have some sort of drag but it does also bring you that real sense of connection and, and interactivity that that people can have on the platform, right? Yeah. And so just um, on that point, I think another interesting question just to be able to discuss would be what types of signals that you've found in the verification process at Nextdoor, what what types of signals have you found most effective? And and then Jennifer, we can go over to your side on, on Etsy. Yeah, I mean, I think... In general, we think about what our, our what we decided our goals were. It's like real people, real tight of the neighborhood, right? And signals that tell you get provide more information about that 
are very important, right? We want to know like, yeah, does, does, is, do they have the, does this person, does this identity have a relationship? Are they using a device that's, that, that we, we generally trust it? Have we seen that device before if it's uh, someone returning or even a bad actor that's using the same device on, on everything, right? But being able to establish like, yeah, there's a real tie to this to a place also tells you something about the identity. That's something that we we kind of learned here is that like if you focus on just doing the identity side, you can learn a lot about like here's an identity, right? But it, it doesn't. It, it's actually really hard to build up a very solid sense of someone's identity, even if you can know something about where they are in in, in place. Like you think about geolocation, you think about other geo signals, you think about ties to areas. Like those are all indicators of real personhood, even if they aren't indicators of. Yes, this is Justin at a real, real place. It's a person at a real place, and those things those things add up. They add up to being able to tell you a, a lot about real person, real tie. Even if you don't know specifically, like, oh yes, this is Justin, this is Jennifer, this is this is Joe, right? That's fascinating. Yeah, and I, you know, I'd imagine part of that is the context of your business, how the platform operates, what the goals of the platform are. You know, that that of course influences the user verification balance that you're trying to strike. Um, Jennifer, on, on your side with Etsy? Yeah, absolutely. My goal, one of my goals on Etsy, because we're e-commerce, one of the outsized risks is fraud. So sellers that would onboard and try to commit fraud, not ship the items or what have you. So coming at it from that lens, again, back to this concept of increased levels of verification, meaning increased friction, trying to do that in a targeted way so that you're using signals to only introduce that friction where you think you need to. But it can be just as simple as thinking of where is a criminal going to buy information to pass an automated check? So if the least friction that you have is something where you give your name and your date of birth, and that's automated, and it's verified, and the user continues on without interruption, it's pretty easy to buy those types of credentials on the dark web or wherever. So it doesn't take a lot for a criminal to get past that. So the more data points that you introduce and the more verification steps incrementally makes it more expensive and more challenging for a bad actor to get all of those data points that they need to pass. But it adds expense for you because you're using more vendors, more sources, and you're introducing more friction. So not easy, but that's what comes to my dream. Got it. So that would be, I think, just, you know, thinking about that a little bit more specifically, you know, context is important, the, the context, the that progressive sign up or verification process, either within the onboarding flow, that's something that, you know, I certainly see working with customers and being, you know, contextual about what you're asking a user to do and when is, is really important. Like the other angle to that is, I think we touched on that a little bit is, you know, as a company running trust and safety, when do you decide, you know, how do you strike that balance on this is enough to onboard a user onto our platform versus, you know, we need to do ongoing user verification at different moments. That that balance seems hard to strike, but but really important. So maybe Jennifer, on that side of it, how do you think about verifying new users versus an ongoing verification process through the life cycle? Some of that is, again, going to be driven by regulatory requirements. So on the payment side, it is a normal baseline requirement that you would verify onboarding. 
but that you would also risk rate your users to have a point of view about their relative risk level throughout their life cycle where a higher risk seller is subjected to more frequent verification or even in some cases a more heightened manual due diligence review. So part of it is is driven by that. And then beyond that, you go back to the goals. What are you trying to do by knowing your participants? And what periodic or ad hoc or trigger-based checks would support you in achieving that goal? So if it's fraud reduction, how can you partner with your fraud team to identify the signals that they see that don't tell them for sure that they're dealing with a bad actor, but overlap with trends that they've seen connected or something really early stage that introducing a verification step could be a good intervention to stop. So if you're thinking about something like ATO, if someone makes a change in the account, maybe that triggers an automatic re-verification. But then to go back to what you were saying, I think that the framing of the why to the user is so important. Because this stuff is annoying. We've all done it ourselves on platforms and it, it kind of sucks. And so it's hard, but to try to communicate transparently why you're asking for it and try to convey that them providing it supports the health of the overall platform and will continue to bring buyers to them. Like there's a there's a reason behind this. And connected to that also consolidating wherever you can. So if we have a tax-driven verification requirement and a strategic verification goal and a couple other things, can we combine them? Can we use things that we already have? How can we make this a more streamlined experience for the seller? Yeah. And uh, one area there, and I always struggle with this as I think about it because you know, I'm, I'm in the industry and cybersecurity and identity. So not sure if every user thinks about this, but I think there is a, a broader awareness around what's my data being used for you know, the, the, just the privacy side of it. And so I think there's a general consciousness around those topics now that the average user has. I don't think that's that's just us in the industry. And so, you know, that transparency around how you're using data, what the benefits are for the user themselves, but also to the security and integrity of the platform they're, they're signing on. Those are some uh, factors that seem like they're more and more increasingly more important to companies and to the users of those companies. That's a really great point. Just to jump in quickly, like, that is a another dimension to this conversation is the infosec implications of collecting and storing this information it's really sensitive identity information and you may have an obligation to store it for a period that's fairly long depending on what regulatory drivers of the collection and verification exist so it can also be expensive to build the infrastructure needed to store this responsibly and to protect the information that you you've leveraged to to verify. So yeah, that's um, a huge kind of invisible factor of this work. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, Justin, on your side, just how do you think about um, new user verification versus active? Sure. And I think there's a ton of things that can like echo as I go through here. But um, I, a lot of what I think about is is thinking about velocity of, of a bad actor and like how quickly they can gain access and trying to balance those things. A lot of our Basically, all of our verification, at least at this point, is not uh, regulatory driven. It's you know, protecting the platform. It's integrity driven. So we we do have a lot of flexibility in how we think about choosing which side of the wall to do the analysis on, and trying to tra- trade those things off. Right. So if you're looking at that that power distribution of bad actors and trying to draw a line, you want to make sure you get enough people through that you're accomplishing growth goals. Right. 
And that whatever baseline you set, whatever line it ends up being, you're able to use that to feed into the next stage where you detect like, oh, hey, someone signed up and then did something bad, right? Because like ultimately use like new user verification at that, at least at the, the first stage is a very small window of time where you have to make a quick decision. Should someone, does someone clear the bar or not, right? And at that point in time, you only have so much information to work with. You need to set up, need to ask for, step up your information, ask for more so you can make a decent risk evaluation and then use that in the next phase once someone actually has access to the platform to decide, did that risk analysis I did, that that actually help me determine like, oh yeah, I've, I've weeded out most of the most of the, of the bad actors and I can actually see like, this is a group of people who's, who's, who's acting badly, right? Trading those things off is, is, is kind of key. When, you, when you're a bad actor, you're trying to create a lot of things at scale. You're trying to find a way through and that process helps you determine with you have, that you have enough information in order to gain more later and use that to make your uh, risk analysis. Yeah, it makes sense. So this is a one level deeper, but I think um, a really interesting one to, to talk about for the audience is mobile versus web around user verification. And, you know, at Incognia, we work with mobile first companies. They typically all have a, a web component. A lot of that is region specific, you know, what markets we're working in. The U.S. is uh, much more web heavy than heavy than other many of the regions of the world. But specifically on the topic of user verification, how do your companies approach some of the nuances and challenges on mobile versus web? And there's a few factors, you know, what type of signals and data is available, but then also what's the friction in that verification process on a, on a laptop versus a, a mobile device. So, you know, anything you can share just on how you think about that you know, that angle of, of this challenge of user verification on, on mobile versus, versus web. And, um, you know, anyone who would like to start here, let you take it away. I think I can talk a little bit about this on, at least on the, on the technical side. I mean, I, I think it, it is challenging, right? Like web platforms are generally stronger protectors of their users' data. They generally are more, it's not even strong, like they're, they're more protective. They hide more details, right? Geolocation is necessarily very hard to do on web versus on mobile where you have more access to the device, where geolocation is actually an important aspect of providing a good experience on a mobile device, right? That presents challenges, right? And, and I think the key is to think about how you balance risk on those different platforms where you see most of your risk coming from and how do you adjust your, at least on the verification side, verification process in order to understand how risky is it on this platform? How do I step up um, asks of users to get more information so I can de-risk it? And then how do I uh, adjust the order, the process for asking questions about users in order to gain more information that you can use to make your risk analysis? Um, at the end of the day, they're different platforms. There's different data available. There's more and less, just depends on which one it is. Web does remain challenging. It is something we have to think about a lot, especially because a lot of users still use web. Right, you look at the U.S. It's not as much desktop web, but mobile web is still very, very popular in the U.S. Despite despite the fact that we have apps available, and that's something that we have to think about. Like, how do I focus in on thinking about this specific platform in order to improve our risk analysis and get more folks through? Yeah, fascinating. Jennifer, very same, very same take. So. You just need to closely align with the business side who is evaluating user preferences 
do they prefer to use the app to sell or are they gravitating toward toward web buying and selling can have different user behaviors for us we're mostly focused on sellers but then also really working closely with the fraud teams to refine your goal knowing that there's going to be different signals given on mobile versus web and or app versus web and it is another way that this is a dimensional issue so it does add complexity but when you think about experience that's also a factor do you does the user think that it was easier to go through this if they were just doing it on their phone versus needing to go sit down at their computer to execute it so a lot of considerations and and building for both is resource heavy yeah that makes sense Perfect. Well, um, just looking at the clock here, we have about 10 minutes left. So um, maybe we can move to the last piece here on look ahead and recommendations, and then we'll leave some time for Q&A at the end. But, you know, just to think this is always a nice way to wrap up a discussion like this is, you know, how you see, I think maybe the start, how you see user verification evolving over the next few years, you know, what new challenges are emerging or maybe new approaches or technologies that you're seeing that are helping drive your user verification forward. Um, so a few different angles, feel free to take it however you'd like, but uh, I think that would be a, a nice way to start this. And uh, Jennifer, do you want to start? Sure. So I'm still in a space of defining the full universe of goals for our seller verification program. We know fraud is one of them, but I think there are more. The DMCA Pornhub example being an interesting one for me. I don't think that we would, because of the nature of our platform, our DMCA violations are different, but I am interested to see how we might lean into seller verification as a way of refining our content moderation and some of our other downstream trust and safety operational activities. Beyond that, there's been a lot of movement in policymaking as it relates to requiring seller verification. So the Digital Services Act coming out of the EU has introduced a requirement to verify all of your traders or your incorporated business sellers. So that's a new payments agnostic requirement to verify. So it's going to be one of the more prescriptive inputs to your overall program. And the INFORM Act in the United States is a similar driver of this new regulatory obligation, regardless of what payment process you're using to verify seller identity. So Starting to see this gain some traction in terms of regulation, which is interesting to see the value of this really start to become more common knowledge. Interesting. I think on my side, the it's easy to see like beyond regulation, like even thinking about like social media, like there are so many more ways for bad actors to develop very fast attacks. Like, I mean, I don't want to overhype a GPT, but it, it's hard not to look at that and see how it can be used for disinformation campaigns, disinformation campaigns broad at in combinations of the two, like <laughs> running misinformation camp, disinformation campaigns to sell t-shirts. Like the ways that people can use that to increase velocity are things that I think are really concerning when you look at the, look at the future. And one of the things people talk about is using user verification to say like, yeah, I mean, yes, this human could have used GPT to produce a piece of content, but they still had to be a human in order to do it. And that that introduces a little bit more friction, a little bit less, gives bad actors less velocity in the system. So I, I generally tend to see like looking forward, like, yeah, that that is definitely, user verification is becoming more important, even in applications beyond regulatory arenas, even if, you know, there are regulatory 
conversations going on in the social media space, but even beyond that, it's going to be important to do because it, it's it's a key tool for slowing down bad activity and preventing abuses that from systems that now can make bad activity much faster, right? Regardless of how well uh, OpenAI open and the other folks are, are trained their AI to avoid doing bad activity, well, it will be used for this. And in, verification is one part of that component that can help us at least slow down the attack and gain more time to respond to it. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, uh, and one of the things that I've been thinking about, you know, working with trust and safety teams is, you know, as, as we've all been educated over the last 10 years on a lot of new platforms, social media, how these platforms work and the consequences around them is content moderation versus something like user verification and how those two things play together and how much more you would say user verification is, is a priority now versus some of the old, you know, some of the initial ways that trust and safety, you know, from the outside, at least thought about kind of one of the, the core, you know, strategies to ensure trust and prevent fraud on a platform, scams, et cetera. So is it fair to say that user verification is now kind of a, a higher priority just in terms of building out that process on your platforms? I think that just to be able to maybe put a finer point on that, is that a, a fair assessment that, that user verification is kind of one of those, you know, top line priorities as you think about your trust and safety approach? Yeah, I, I'd say it's a key tool. Like it, it's a tool you can use to, like I was mentioning earlier, slow down an attack, think about how to introduce important friction. Like so much of like what we, I mean, as good tech people, we, we like reduce friction, reduce friction, reduce friction. Sometimes you need to think about how you inject it intentionally and targeted in a targeted way so that you gain yourself more time to respond to other concerns like 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 fraud, like misinformation, all, all the all these different things that can that can happen quickly if you have that very open platform, right? I think you can kind of see that with especially in social media, like when you remove those barriers, when you don't have those things like, you either have so many problems that you, it's, you're just playing whack-a-mole on the content moderation side. Like it's going to take you a month to re- get through your queue. And by that time, the damage is already done, right? User verification is a key tool that helps you prevent really bad activity. It doesn't prevent everything. Like real people are <laughs> produce misinformation all the time. They produce fraud all the time. Like it is still a problem, but it, it gives you a tool to help uh, respond and adjust to the various attacks that you're seeing. Uh, Jennifer, anything to add on, on your side as we wrap up? Yep. Content moderation is always whack-a-mole, but anything you can do to reduce that is welcome. So <laughs> fraud is an obvious way that seller verification can help reduce downstream bad outcomes. We know that content moderation isn't the way to attack fraud either. That's way too late. You need to be intervening sooner. So seller verification is one of those earlier interventions. But I think that there's opportunities beyond that. We need to know certain things about our sellers to know what policy violations on the content side they may be more or less likely to make. And then we can tune our detective controls accordingly to maybe pay more attention to a seller that demonstrates certain attributes that for whatever reason correlate more strongly with IP violations or who knows. I just think there's a lot more to learn about the connection between verification and content moderation. Great. That's really interesting. Great. Well, I know we, uh, I could go on here all day, but um, this is a great conversation. I know we've got about three minutes left. So Andrea, do you want to, do we have any Q&A questions uh, we want to use the remaining few minutes for here? 
Yeah, thank you, everyone. So we did have a bunch come in. Hopefully we can get one in real quick. Um, first one, does verification happen for a family or address or at an individual level? Yeah, I'm going to assume that's directed at me. For us, it's it's every every new neighbor that joins. It's, it is a person who joins. It is when that neighbor joins, they're one person. They join and they um, address is one component of verification. Like I said, real person with a real tie is, is what we're looking for. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's both both the address component and the the real person. Awesome. Um, I think maybe we do one more. And what stage of a platform growth would you say the ID verification might be introduced? I'll let Jennifer go if she has anything, but I have some thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the goal of your verification process and how important identity specifically is to that. So if you have a payments platform, you'll definitely need to do this. But you also don't need to collect the ID. That is not that is a more escalated or a heightened level of proof. So you can do less than ask for the ID and still consider someone's verified identity to be verified. Yeah, I mean, from my side, I would think about what level of ID verification do you need and what, what are we using it to accomplish? Like if you're a payments platform, like you may need this in order to even be a platform legally. If you're, you know, like a social platform, you're like, you may want to think about like, what environment are you trying to create? What level of verification do you need? Because ID verification isn't binary. Like even if you even if you pull out a uh, you know a driver's license and have someone verify that, like even that's not perfect. There are ways to spoof that and think about it. So think about what your risks are, what environment you're trying to build, and then scale the the verification you're trying to do to that. Right? Do you really need an ID? Can you go down to understanding? Is this a real person? Is it a or is is that even not required? It just it depends on what your application is trying to do, right? And if your application needs that level of verification or what specific level of verification it needs. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. Any final remarks before I close this out? Just a thank you to uh, Jennifer and Justin. Really appreciative of your your time and insights, just uh, the experience and, and the knowledge. So thanks for um, all the prep and all the great insights today. This was great. Yep. My pleasure. It's always fun to be reminded of how similar the challenges that we confront across trust and safety teams are. It's it can feel like that's not true. And so it's refreshing to hear the overlap with Justin. Yeah, I mean, same here. At the end of the day, it is, you know, you, know, you have bad actors, you're trying to figure out what their motivations are and how to prevent the abuse that they cause from happening. It, it Whether it's payments or it's misinformation, fraud, like romance scams, et cetera, things, things that happen on the social side. Yeah, they're very similar and you can think about them very, very similar. Similarly, even if they are, have, have nuances that, that distinguish them. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trust and Safety Mavericks. Subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode and follow Incognit and me, Andre Faraz, on LinkedIn and Twitter.